Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of After the Applause. I'm so glad to have you. Thank you for tuning in. And thanks for your patience in the last couple of weeks. I know there hasn't been an episode for a little longer than usual. I was getting a new computer, but now we're good. And now we're here. And I have a new episode for you. Uh, This week's episode features Paul David Flood, who is currently pursuing his master's degree in musicology at the University of California, Irvine. His research primarily focuses on developments of Nordic musical identity and modernism in Denmark. He is currently working on his master's thesis, provisionally titled Embracing the Outsider, Critical Perspectives Toward Per Norgard's Wolfly Works. I don't think I pronounced that correctly, but he talks about it later, so that's okay. Uh, His secondary interests include contemporary music reception, music and philosophy, vocal literature, and the Eurovision Song Contest. He received his BA in music from Westminster Choir College in 2019 and is an active choral singer. If you've listened to the episode with Gina Marie Falk, you might be familiar with NISA, which is the program that she and I attended together and also that Paul David and I attended together. So he talks about that a little bit. And... Before we get into the episode, I just want to say we had some connectivity and sound issues during this episode, so for the most part, it's fine, and especially as it goes on, it gets a lot better, but the beginning is a little spotty, and I'm sorry if it's difficult to hear, so thank you. Thank you for bearing with me. All right, enjoy. Hi, so I grew up in the Hudson Valley region of New York. Um, There, I kind of knew growing up that I always wanted to be a singer. If you ask anybody who knew me before my teenage years, they'll tell you that I was glued to American Idol during its like golden age. (laughs) From like the mid to late 2000s. And of course that turned into my obsession with Eurovision, which is a whole other thing. When I was in middle school, I kind of joined choir on a whim and I loved it. And it just sort of became the thing you know, throughout high school, I did all of the, like, all-county, all-region, all-state choirs, and slowly but surely, this sort of became this thing that I knew I had to do for a career, and so after high school, I uh, moved to New Jersey. I got my BA in music at Westminster Choir College, and now I'm living in Irvine, California, where I'm a second-year grad student in musicology at University okay great so actually can you tell me a bit about why you love eurovision so much and how you got interested in it in the first place so in 2011 i was like procrastinating and just going through like memes on youtube or whatever and i came across this epic sax guy meme which originated (laughs) from (laughs) from Moldova's entry in Eurovision in 2010 that was eventually turned into a meme Mm -hmm. and that just kind of led me on this spiral of Eurovision performances from the years 2010 2011 and I was just kind of like what is this this is the coolest thing ever and so I looked it all up and just fell in love with the idea of countries competing and then the history behind the contest it being this kind of um, program meant to unionized award unionize a war-torn europe after world war ii and it's i've been a fan of the contest for 10 years now 
That's, wow, I guess that, I guess, yeah, I guess it has been 10 years since 2010. That is pretty remarkable. <laughs> a whole decade. So what keeps you coming back to it rather than any other kind of broadly well-known musical performance outlet? It's, it's so different every year, you know, from the host country to the performances to the whole production itself. And just the idea that you don't know what's going to happen, you know? Mm. The process of the season itself, which usually begins in December when Albania is the first to pick their entry, and then all the way through March is when we know the entries. And then the betting odds start changing, and then the rehearsals happen, and it's this constant, like, months-long process of, in many cases, you have one expectation of, like, oh, this country's going to win, and then the complete opposite happens. Sure. really exciting and it's something that keeps you on your toes until the very last second yeah that does i maybe i should start watching eurovision you're you're convincing me (laughs) is there anything about it musically that is particularly attractive to you i mean looking back at eurovision's history you know i think the most famous artist to come out of eurovision is abba they won the contest for sweden in 1974 Um, time out what i had no idea are you kidding I uh, know. So, 1974, they won with Waterloo, and that sort of propelled their national success. They were already relatively famous in Sweden and in surrounding European countries, but that was what really propelled their European or their international success. Celine Dion won the contest in 1988 for Switzerland, along with French. She was in her teens, I think, in that year, so this was very early in her career. But there's something so charming about a lot of the music. If you look at the contest, say, in since 2000, and there's also this growing kind of campy aspect to it, which I think has really captured the attention of a lot of people who know of Eurovision only tangentially, mm. or who really just watch it during the week of Eurovision. But it's a mixed bag with Eurovision. You never really know what you're going to get. Sure. Wow. I had absolutely no idea that Eurovision had so much influence on like even American pop music. Even though these are transplants, obviously, but like, wow, that's, wow, that's really interesting. Okay, changing lanes. I did not expect to go on a Eurovision tangent, but you're the only, you're the closest thing I know to a Eurovision expert, so I figured you were the right person to ask these questions to. Oh, thank you. Yes, of course. Okay, so you ended up, now you're, now you study musicology. How did you get interested in musicology in the first place, and what made you gravitate towards furthering your studies in that field? So when I got to college and when I was wrapping up high school, I was so sure that I wanted to be a vocal performance major, that I wanted to be an opera singer. I had it all planned out, get my BM, my MM, get my artist diploma, young artist programs. I, was, I thought it was what I wanted. And to a degree, singing is still very serious to me. You know, I have a choral singing background. Mm -hmm. I very much participate in that still. I still take voice lessons. But I slowly realized, I don't know if this is entirely what I want my career to be. You know, it started, I kind of started to feel the pressure that was associated with it. And it got to a point where I was like, okay, I don't really, I know I want to have a career in music, but I just don't know which specific outlet. And... I took a seminar at Westminster on American opera, which has always been an interest of mine, contemporary and American opera in particular. And this was at the time when I was still kind of toying with the idea of 
do I want to have a career in vocal performance? Do I want to go in another direction? And the thing for me about this seminar was being able to look at these operas through a non-performative lens and rather an academic lens, mm. which is really exciting to me because it opened a lot of different ideas and a lot of different considerations that I'd never thought of before. And I thought, oh, this is the coolest thing ever. And it was, you know, I wrote some papers and I got to read a lot and it was so fulfilling to me. So I talked to the professor and I kind of thought, you know what, let's give this musicology thing a spin. And so far it's been really the most exciting thing I've done. That's awesome. I, I love to hear that. So I, I don't want to get this exactly wrong, so I am going to ask you to like state exactly what it is you study, but I read that you study the influence of Nordic traditional music on Denmark? Is, am I close? You're close. You're very close. Okay. So my research basically deals with developments of Nordic musical identity and developments of modernism in Denmark after 1930. So I'm particularly interested in Danish composers and developments of modernism after Carl Nielsen, who is arguably the most famous, most well-known Danish composer. But I'm looking at sort of the next generation of composers like Pal Nogel, who is my primary sort of composer of study. I'm working on him for my master's thesis. And then, so that's what I primarily do. And then I'm also interested in um, contemporary music perception and music and philosophy and Eurovision. But that's really where my focus is at the moment. Sure. So how did you arrive at that um, specific topic? Well, through kind of two through two ways. One, and this goes back to Eurovision, I always had kind of an affinity with Scandinavian pop music, you know. While everybody else was listening to Katy Perry, I was listening to, like, Robin and Bjork. And um, so there was that. And then how I specifically found these composers was also in high school. Um, so when you're 14, 15 years old and you're in a high school choir program, usually your gateway into discovering contemporary classical music is Eric Whitaker. So I think I was using Pandora at the time, that streaming service where you can kind of get this, like a radio based on a mm -hmm. song or an artist. And I had an Eric Whitaker radio and I listened to just all kinds of choral music. And eventually that turned into more specific radio channels. And then I came across a piece called um, Soma Fjolladelen by Sven Nielsen, which was, I, I, I was speechless, exactly. Like, I, it was the coolest thing I'd ever heard. I didn't understand it, but I wanted to know everything about it. And then that led to a rabbit hole of discovering composers like Nogal and Pelle Gudmundsen Holmblin. I listened to like most, if not all, of the Ars Nova Copenhagen discography at the time, and I just kind of had all of this, no this all of the knowledge of this music in my back pocket, and then once I discovered that I wanted to do musicology, I was like, oh, this is something that I can work with. Sure. Because it, there's not a lot of scholarship. I mean, scholarship on these composers does exist in English, but there's not a lot. And so what I hope I can do is sort of fill those gaps mm. and, and um, contextualize this music into a broader understanding of European modernism or European avant-garde. 
Sure. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, so if you were speaking to a group of people who don't have a lot of experience listening to Scandinavian music in general, regardless of genre, where do you think is a good starting point? Well, you can go one of two ways. I mean, you can get them into the pop music, you know, introduce them to ABBA all the way through Robin and Bjork, as I mentioned, Sigurdos, for example, as well. Um, or, you know, they most likely have probably heard the Greek Pugent Suite, you mm, know, mm-hmm. and you can expand beyond that, show them Sibelius, show them Nielsen, eventually expand into Nogol and into Kaya Sariaho and Anatolbov's Daldiev. Um, I think there's so many avenues to go with that, but that, those are the probably two places I would start with. Sure. Um, okay, kind of switching lanes again away from your particular area of study and more towards musicology more generally. Um, you are the first musicologist I am interviewing, and <laughs> and I'd be curious to hear what you think the field of musicology. This is obviously going to be full of generalizations. It's the nature of the game. But what do you think that the field of musicology does very well, and what do you think needs improvement? This is a question I've been thinking about, and it's a little bit weird for me to answer because of where I am at my stage. Um, I mean, I'm only a master's student, you know? Mm-hmm. I, and I'm on Twitter, I'm able to see like what people are talking about and what the present issues and topics are in the field, but there's still so much for me to learn and experience about the field before I can have like definitive answers to these questions. But I think one thing that I would really like to see happen is what are institutions and what are organizations doing to prepare musicologists for after the PhD mm. if they don't end that tenure track job, which is a difficult thing to achieve. You know, some people would call this um, alternative academic routes, but I mean, when I think about the career that I want, I'm thinking, okay, I would love to get that tenure track job someday, but, you know, I want to keep my options open to maybe administrative work, to um, archival and librarianship work, which by no means is, like, an easy backup, because that requires years of training beyond knowing, like, where the ML410 section is in the library. Sure, yeah. But, But I think for people going into... their initial studies in musicology, I think allowing these people to think about what the options are beyond academia. Mm. That's honestly not even something I would have ever really thought about because when I think about people who want to get their master's and then their PhD, I always just assume that they want to teach at a collegiate level and that that's kind of their only plan. And I guess I never really think much about the fact that there should be or sometimes is room outside of that to do other things that you're interested in um so on that on that same vein how do you balance because corona corona aside like so (laughs) pre-pandemic and ideally post-pandemic um i know that you are still a church singer um how do you balance your love for singing with uh you know i would imagine very rigorous academic study i I personally don't think I can have one without the other. Uh, that 
I found an easy balance between the two because my personal philosophy is I don't know if I can be involved in that rigorous academic study of music without myself being immersed in the active applied creation of music. Yeah, that actually does make a lot of sense. I'm assuming that along the way you have had probably several, maybe just a couple mentors in your studies, whether that is in your purely vocal musical studies or in your musicological studies. And can you tell me a bit about, if you don't feel comfortable naming specific names of people, that's entirely fine. But can you tell me about what made those mentors really good mentors? What made and has made these mentors so great for me is that they taught me to believe in myself. Mm which is something I always kind of struggled with going into anything. And maybe that's sort of just a common feeling of going into something you're passionate about and you kind of have this imposter syndrome of, oh, I love this, but am I good at it? Um, what my mentors, both in the musicological realm and in the voice realm, have taught me is, have taught me, aside from giving me the skills to succeed logistically, it just taught me how to believe myself and that I know what to do with those skills and I think it's mentors like that who really have made a lasting impact on me mm. yeah yeah that's great can you tell me about a life-changing or inspiring artistic experience it can be musical not musical it can be broad a specific moment mm. so so from the background um you and I attended a summer together in the summer of 2014 and 2015. Yeah, and, we did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and during, um, during those summers, we had multiple performances as a choir. And I think both times around, we gave concerts at the um, Chautauqua Institution, at their big amphitheater. This is in um, Chautauqua County, New York, a uh, little where Fredonia is, and um, we gave this cool open-air concert in this amphitheater, and it was a big audience, and we sang so much music, and I remember singing whatever the last piece was that we sang in that first concert, and the second, and the concert our second year, and just standing there and watching the applause and thinking, this is the coolest thing I've ever done. Like, this has, this experience has completely solidified what I want to do. Um, you know, for young 17, 18-year-old Paul, however, um, it was the first time I felt part of a community that I could identify with. And community is something that I've always been drawn to. Um, I think something that connects all of the sort of formative experiences I've had in my life, um, formative musical experiences that I've had in my life, I think the thing that connects them all is that there's a sense of community tied to them and that I got to experience those with people who are my friends, people who I care about. Um, so yeah, that's just one specific example. Okay, last question. What have you been listening to lately on repeat? Go. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, okay. Um, the, the, I'm trying to think, what would my Spotify tell you? Um, <laughs> The three albums that I think I've been listening to on repeat lately have been um, Ungodly Hour by Chloe and Hallie. 
Chef's kiss, beautiful. <laughs> so good. Pang by Caroline A second chef's kiss, also beautiful. And Womb by Purity Ring. Wonderful. Be beautiful. I have not been able to stop listening to, um, what is it? Go as a Dream. Ooh, the, the um, vocalism so in that. So Hot, You're Hurting My Feelings has been, like, my, like, young, gay, in a long-term relationship in quarantine anthem, and it's been great. It's... I can't wait, I can't wait for it to be my most listened to song on my Spotify Rewind. Oh my god, I know, I was listening to that song non-stop during the fall. That's so funny. I love it. Okay, <laughs> fabulous. All right, well, thank you so much for joining me. In this thank you for having me. It of course, fun. of course, it was a pleasure. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you all once again for tuning in to another episode of After the Applause. If you or anybody that you know would be interested in being interviewed for the podcast, you can send me an email at aftertheapplausepod at gmail.com. We also have a Patreon. Once again, I do all of the sound editing and interviewing and scheduling and marketing everything by myself. It would be great to receive a little bit more financial support as always so that I don't have to include ads or anything of that sort. It makes your listening experience better and my editing experience easier if you subscribe on Patreon, which also has benefits, different tiers. You can ask questions to the interviewees uh, after the second tier of donations, I believe. So check that out if you're interested. And if you are not able to subscribe on Patreon. A review on whatever podcast platform you use to listen is also greatly, greatly appreciated. It really helps people find the podcast. So yes. Our theme music is by Gabriel Hightower. Production and interviewing is done by myself, Emily Schalbetter. I think that's all. Bye-bye.